Okay. All right. One, two, three. Welcome to Enterprise Masters, a podcast from Wipro Ventures about enterprise software startups. Hello, I'm Bipla Badia, one of your hosts, along with my friend and business partner, Venu Pimaraju. Hello, everyone. It's my pleasure to welcome our guest, Kumar Ramchandran, co-founder and CEO of Cloudgenics. We at Wipro Ventures and Wipro have been very fortunate to be associated with Kumar and his team for the last two and a half years. As some of you are aware, Cloudgenics was recently acquired by Palo Alto Networks for $420 million, which was a fantastic exit for employees, management, and investors. With that introduction, welcome Kumar. Great to have you. Before we get started, tell us a bit about Cloudgenix and what motivated you to start it. And was there a moment when you said to yourself, you know what, I need to take this plunge? Benu, first off, uh, thanks much for uh, having me on this podcast. I'll answer this question in two ways, right? One is maybe the technology motivation, and then I'll give a more personal answer too. Uh, From a technology perspective, right, I'd been working in the branch business for several years, in the networking business for several years, and we just saw a moment where we could fundamentally change how networks were built compared to the last 20 or 30 years before it. And, you know, we had the technology insight Plus, more importantly, we saw that there were some very big customer problems brewing. The transition to cloud, to multi-cloud, or a broader usage of internet, the adoption of technologies like LTE, 4G at that time, and then, of course, today, 5G. All those were things that we were ruminating about. And as we looked at the products and technology stacks and architectures that were there, it became very clear to my co-founders and me that we needed a fundamental rewrite of how networks were built. So that was a massive opportunity, right? And it was an opportunity where there was going to be business model transformation because the world was moving to uh, subscription software SaaS-based models. And a lot of the incumbents were caught on the wrong foot on both counts, right? The business model, because they were stuck with, they were used to selling boxes to the customers and forgetting about the customer for the next five years, as well as they had technology stacks that were rooted in older uh, architectures that we thought uh, there was a massive opportunity to build something, grounds up, solve these customer problems in a compelling manner. That was on the you know, just looking at transitions from a technology as well as from a market problem statement perspective. Uh, From a very personal uh, standpoint, you know, like uh, many entrepreneurs probably face, it was a tough decision, right, to leave a good steady paying job and jump into the unknown. And in my case, it helped to step away from uh, what I was doing for a little bit. What I realized is that we just live in such a unique time of and circumstance of opportunity. Out of the seven plus billion people on planet Earth, there's a small number of us that find ourselves in a fortunate position where we live in a place like Silicon Valley, where there is such a thriving ecosystem of VCs and other entrepreneurs and uh, partners who can help fund, nourish, and uh, build out a company. What I realized for myself is that if I didn't do this, I'd live with regret for a very long time. And that was just not something I wanted to do, right? Living with regret. So we took the plunge, my co-founders and I, 
and we never looked back. That's awesome, Kumar. You know, I, I think all of us are very fortunate that we live in an environment where there's a rich ecosystem that nurtures entrepreneurs who have thoughts of starting something. So I think that is that is great. Now, you know, as they say, you know, taking the plunge is one thing. And then, you know, so much of the success is predicated on the composition of the founding team. And, you know, I'm sure you looked at team chemistry, looked at their talent. You know, of course, you know, people have different opinions, uh, but ultimately, you know, founders have to be on the same page. And uh, so as part of your journey, when you were thinking, let's take the plunge, you know, tell us a little bit about how you went about the process of kind of putting your team together and then ensuring that this team stays together over the journey that you are going to embark upon. That's a great question. I think we were clear about a few things. One thing that right from day one, we were very clear on was that we committed to a culture where everyone had to defend their ideas, their suggestions, their opinions in a similar manner. Meaning that just because I was CEO, I didn't get a hall pass in terms of needing to defend and work through my ideas versus, uh, let's say, anyone else in the company. Right, we held everyone else, everyone accountable to the same standard. This is not to confuse with it being, you know, some kind of let everyone vote and uh, it's a decision by the majority or anything else. No, there is a decision-making structure, and you know, the the buck does stop with the founding team and the CEO. But every decision we made or every suggestion we made, we held ourselves accountable to being able to justify it. One of the great methodologies for startups, especially, and even for large companies and products, etc., you know, came from someone called Steve Blank. And I, had, I was fortunate enough to take a class called Customer Development by Steve at UC Berkeley. And one of his students has created a more practical implementation of customer development called the Lean Startup Methodology. So we definitely borrowed heavily from Steve Blank's work and Eric Ries, who wrote The Lean Startup. And so we held ourselves accountable in decision-making by you know, setting up simple experiments, right? We wouldn't just believe the noise between our ears, so to speak, but actually put it to test. In the industry, oftentimes there is this notion that MVP, minimum viable product, is just what you can get out in the market in the shortest amount of time. If you look at the work that Steve has done, it extends MVP to something slightly different. It really talks about having deterministic experiments that you can run against your early customer base and market so that you can actually verify, validate outside the building the veracity of your ideas. For instance, we had a very strong opinion early on that in our product, we could take data path into the cloud. You know, there was architectural simplicity, elegance to the solution, but all data path, including data paths for the data center, could be taken to the cloud. Even when you spoke with customers, because your customers, A, early customers don't want to call out uh, maybe the incompleteness or the challenges with the idea, you know, we just kept getting positive feedback. But we didn't trust the verbal feedback alone. So we quickly built an MVP. We had a very deterministic purpose to do it. We wanted to experiment with customers to see if they would truly accept that model. And within three months, the team put a solution together and the way we'd ask those customers at that time to give now very credible feedback was we said, okay, let's try and get it deployed in your environment, right? You want something of value to be given back to you by those early customers. It doesn't need to be money. It could just be the time and the effort to deploy your product in their environment. And what we found was that 
Of course, there were all kinds of friction in the sales cycle or in the deployment cycle where security wasn't comfortable at all taking data center workloads and processing it through the cloud. And so with spending very little time, resource, effort, we pivoted and said, you know what? Let's build an architecture that we have clean data and control separation, that you never need to have data path forced through the control path. Now it meant we had to build a more interesting stack. A lot of layer seven capabilities we had to inject into the product, which our competition only realized two or three years later after spending tens of millions of dollars, which we got that insight very early on. If we had a decision-making framework that were different, but just was brute force because it's a senior person's idea or a founder's idea, we, we would have done exactly what our, some of our competitors did and would have spent two or three years and then uh, try to reverse engineer uh, the product or you know fall into the trap that you're going to a different market segment that's maybe not your core market segment. So, the, so having that kind of a decision-making framework definitely helped. And having said that, right, uh, it meant that it didn't require all of us to be on the same page all the time. But uh, once we made the decision though, we all aligned like a very, very uh, tight ship. There were multiple instances where you know one of us would be like, yeah, I'm just not really, I don't think this is the right thing, but the evidence shows otherwise. So once we make a decision, right, and there's a decision made, we just aligned. Didn't matter. We liked it, didn't like it. We embrace it and absolutely deliver the very best thing. Your second point about team chemistry. You know, once a decision is made, you know, disagree and commit. I, I think that is very important. And that's another thing that we investors see when we have the management team during our due diligence as to how is the team reacting to questions. And uh, so excellent points for, you know, future entrepreneurs who are trying to put together a team and trying to put together the pitch, you know, for, for investors. But, you know, I, I know one of your philosophies is, you know what, it's not done until it's done. So starting a company is great, you know, but that's, that's part of the process. Let's shift gears into the growth part of it. And, you know, ultimately investors you know, are investing for growth and, and so, are, so are entrepreneurs, and conventional wisdom says that, you know, you need to have the right product, right sales team, market readiness. And I think you covered that in the previous question. But in hindsight, you know, did it work out that way? You know, what are the key things, you know, the intangibles that are critical for growth engine to work consistently and flawlessly? And you guys had that. And I was so curious, what can our listeners learn from you in terms of making sure that that growth engine is working well? From an intangibles perspective, a lot comes down to the people, right? And it's making sure you have the right people for the right stage of the company. And some of them are going to scale as the company continues to scale up. And some people are going to find themselves in maybe different positions compared to when they had before, right? So as we went along our growth journey, we had people that were early on, maybe not the right person to be the leader and they played individual contributor. And then when that particular team got big enough, the person actually led the entire team. And we had so many examples of it. In fact, I used to believe that you're at a startup that's growing and growing at the pace that we did. Each of us or most of us, we should be interviewing for our jobs every year, right? Either explicitly or at least implicitly, just sitting down and being a little introspective about it. I mean, all the way out to, especially my role as CEO, 
early on, uh, you're, you're, you're playing product manager, hunting for product market fit, and then subsequently the nature of your role changes and being very transparent about it, being very honest about it and a little introspective helps a lot, right? Because in the end, you always want the best people for the position at that stage of the company. Having said that, you know, one big thing that is very, very helpful is truly to understand the nature of the market that a startup is operating in. Are you revectoring an existing market? Are you creating a fundamentally new category? And how, how does that evolution happen? We had a pretty clear sense that we were revectoring an existing market. Most uh, customers have networks connecting their remote offices, but we, we were very, very clear that this would revector. It wasn't just a better router, right? So if we were selling a better router, then there wouldn't be the need for category creation. What we were doing was much more transformative than that. So very early on, we were pretty convinced that we needed to engage in category creation. Now, category creation takes some time. And the interesting thing about category creation is that you truly can't do it by yourself, right? If you're the only company trying to create a category, it's unlikely for the category to fully materialize. But we introduced and coined the term software-defined WAM. Right. When we launched the company externally, we did it in early to mid part of uh, 2014. And we coined the term software-defined WAM. We put out materials about it. We'd educate customers about it. The fact that other companies, including incumbent vendors, picked up the term. We didn't feel badly about it. We were like, great. Uh, we want more people in the category for category establishment. And category establishment is very important so that customers start having budgets allocated against it for the year, right? Otherwise, you're always going to come in as a Band-Aid solution. If a CIO looks at the top 10 projects, you're not going to be in that top 10. And you know, then it influences how rapidly can your company grow. Because we engaged so early in category creation, as the product matured and was ready for the market with critical mass, the category was just exploding, right? And so we you know, harvested the benefits of category creation by doing it at the right time. We were also very, you know, and by the way, none of these journeys are linear. You know, you oscillate between, do you have the right product? Is the product ready to scale, et cetera? And one of the cha th challenges that uh, all of us startups go through is you create an early product, it works well, et cetera, and suddenly your category catches fire. And at that point, you want to ensure that your product is truly ready for the scale that the market is giving it. And if it's not, then even though you are the category creator, you're going to find yourself sidelined. You know, it, it is, as you saw, quite expensive for startups to build a direct sales team and scale it. So which means, you know, there is a lot of focus these days that we see on developing, you know, a successful partner program to drive that so-called nonlinear growth, you know, be it working with, you know, technology services providers like, you know, Wipro, you know, channel partners like CDW and others. Curious, you know, what was your approach to create such a nonlinear growth trajectory? And at what point do you kind of told yourself now is the right time for us to kind of put in the resources necessary for this indirect channel and for it to become productive? This nonlinear growth is so critical because otherwise you are gated almost by the speed of hiring and the speed of uh, uh, in investment. One thing that uh, the way we saw channel, right, was two ways. There was one way we saw channel as a lead source 
And then one way that we saw channel as being able to be even more than lead source, actually be able to address and even solve and sell the product on behalf of us. Of course, if you got to the, the second bucket, it was extremely scalable. The way we approached it and we said, hey, till the time the product is very mature and we understand the sales cycle, we have some large referenceable deployments, etc. we should work with the channel to the extent that, that the channel can be a lead source, right? And it helped tremendously that our teams were in control of the sales cycle and very importantly, in control of the customer experience. I truly think that the right for a startup to exist comes from customer delight. If you can consistently delight your customers, not only from your product, but also with every part of touching the company, all the way from how does your, your product get pitched, how does the product get delivered, post-product delivery, what happens, right? Do we forget about the customer? Do we have assistance to the customer for deployment? Are there post-deployment reviews? How do you engage with your customer post-cycle? All of that is so critical to the success of a startup. We earned our right to exist every single day by delivering on customer delight. So in the early days, we definitely wanted a channel to be a lead source for us. So we wound up working with a lot of different channels, whether it was the traditional VAR community, the master agent community, et cetera. And then when we felt that, hey, you know, we have a pretty repeatable process of deployment, of uh, product uh, pitching, of dealing with uh, the competitive FUD that was thrown at us by uh, some of the incumbent vendors, we said, you know, the product is ready to truly be scaled out by a strong channel partner, right? We almost looked at it like a franchise model. Uh, If you're building out a franchise, the first step is to establish that you can, if you're building a restaurant franchise, that you can build a handful of restaurants really, really well in a profitable manner, in a manner that delights your customers. And only then should you really be franchising it out so that others can repeat what you know already works. And you know, in that, we then sought partners who had a shared vision, who had the, the ability to deliver a similar kind of experience or even a better kind of experience. Uh, uh, you know, in the work we did with Wipro was one of our absolute best work and most scalable uh, work. Now, it helped a lot that Wipro is a large global multinational organization with a very strong ability to deliver capabilities to customers globally. But you know, with that also comes some challenges, right? We are the small startup and there is this large organization that has access and has trust with customers, but you have to bring the two together. And that's where Wipro Ventures and Benu and you and your team were just incredible assets for us. I think, you know, uh, you know, yes, there was an investment and that's definitely helpful. And oftentimes I tell uh, fellow entrepreneurs, all money is green, right? Uh, stock up. And uh, when you have things like COVID happen, definitely uh, it just is, is a, a reminder to all of us entrepreneurs that you know, money is green, stock up on it. But there is truth to the saying about uh, smart money and maybe not dumb money, but plain money. Wipro uh, definitely was smart money, right? I think the ability for Wipro Ventures team to navigate us through the large organization that Wipro is, help set up rules of engagement, help ensure that there were repeatable process training. Uh, Where we got to was we then had this massive organization with tremendous global and deployment scale, being able to not just replicate what we were doing as CloudGenix, but be able to bring some of the best practices that they had 
in delivering the capabilities to the customers. So we had Vipro running proof of concepts, doing bake-offs, doing uh, analysis for customers. And it wound up being a very synergistic approach. And that's an important thing in all these partnerships, right? In the end, nobody can brute force it. The sales reps at the point of attack have to have microeconomic value for truly the partnership to come together, right? It's fine and dandy to have uh, corporate partnerships, but if the sales teams at the point of attack don't have the right kind of alignment and incentives, you're not going to be successful, right? And then after a few quarters, it's just going to grate and grind. You'll have the QBRs and everything else. And then a few quarters later, everyone's just sad that, uh, you know, the, the, the partnership didn't progress. Because we started the customer out, where there was value to the customer in getting a carrier-neutral managed uh, SD-WAN with Wipro. And it was the very first in the industry. And we started from the customer. And then there was microeconomics built out for our sales teams. And then there was corporate partnership. I think if you can do something like that, then the level of scale you get is just mind-blowing. Kumar, thanks for those kind words. You know, the way I look at always is, you know, it takes two to tango. So clearly... You know, we loved working with Cloudgenics, of course, and, uh, you know, and, and it was infectious. So, so I'm glad it worked out well for both of us. Uh, but before we get to that, you know, before we get to the end, you know, the one key question I wanted to ask, which is in today's environment, you know, there are very few white spaces. Uh, there are so many competing solutions. There are so many well-funded startups. And as you said, there are 800-pound gorillas out there. Uh, so everything that can make a CEO awake at night, you know, keep awake at night. What can we learn from your experience in, you know, and you've been even keel all through that I have seen, you know, what what helped you and, and what can others learn from, you know, your experience in terms of, you know, maintaining, as you said, you know, the true north, you know, trying to execute to what you said you would execute, but at the same time be flexible, you know, to maneuver the environment. So what what can CEOs learn from, from you in terms of how you manage a company right from inception to an exit? First off, it's just been an incredible journey, right? And I think uh, a big part of our success came down to the right people, right? Just making sure that whether it was our core engineers, our sales teams, our operational teams, our marketing teams, et cetera, just having the right people, it was so critical to also have the right people on the board. Right. I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, and I, I've had a lot of chats with my fellow uh, CEOs, the number of boards that maybe aren't as uh, productive and as functional as they really need to be is substantial. Right. And, you know, one question I used to ask myself was if you have a board that's unproductive, who's responsible for it? Right. And usually people just keep blaming circumstance. Right. I hold the CEO the founder and the CEO accountable for the functioning of the board, right? And yes, we were super lucky in having an absolutely incredible set of board members who were who had deep industry experience, operators, you know, people that knew how to get the company funded at the right time, people that had partner experience. We had a very, very productive board. I do think it's the CEO's responsibility to ensure that you're structuring your board well. You're, you're ensuring that uh, you're not surprising your board, right? If there are important decisions to be made, the reality is that your board is doing multiple things, right? They're not living and breathing the company every single day. They just can't. And it's your job to make sure that you engage with the board uh, on a regular basis outside of the board meeting, et cetera. And we had a board that did a lot of work for us. That was just the reality, 
right? Where literally every board member used to work on behalf of Cloud Genix tremendously. So those things help a lot, right? Because then you're not alone in the journey. Oftentimes, you know, we, the, being a startup CEO is a very lonely journey. In our case, what we did was we were like, listen, here's the data. We were very transparent with the board. You know, we used to send out this uh, Sunday newspaper, which just laid out uh, wins, losses, things that were going well or not going well every Sunday morning, right? It's one of the things that Matt Hickey did. And what it did was that when we sat down for decision making, it wasn't as if we were on other two different sides of the table. It was just a bunch of smart people with deep operational experience and different perspectives looking at a set of data, all sitting on the same side of the table. And that just took away so many things that would normally just cause grating and grinding. And then when it comes to some of the decision making, it doesn't matter uh, how great your board is, how great everyone is, you as CEO do have to, uh, you know, you have the responsibility of uh, navigating the company and making hard decisions uh, when required. I think what helped us tremendously was our deep conviction and faith in the problem statement, right? Through, you know, different market circumstances, the market didn't evolve overnight, right? There were periods of time where the market was slower than what we had planned for. And, you know, when you make uh, deep investments between burn and everything else, it can start to get a little hairy. But our, we had just very deep conviction. And, you know, one thing that helped us, I think, was we also never built the company for a quick exit. We were absolutely single-minded in ensuring that we were building a company for the long haul. We were building business that could absolutely stand on its own, deliver value to customers, be profitable for the investors, such that, you know, as and when there was a, an offer on the table that, you know, made sense for the investors, the employees, our customers, etc., the company could look at it objectively. Multiple times through our journey, we walked away from offers that we felt we either were not in the interest of our customers or our investors or our employees, right? So that helped us uh, tremendously that we were not focused on the near term, but we had the courage of conviction uh, to focus on the long term. On a very personal basis, I think different people deal with just stress or variability differently, right? I've seen, you know, startup people that deal with, you know, have a more, deal with it in a, with a lot of equanimity, if you will. For me, actually, what helped was, you know, I allowed the highs to be high and the lows to be low. And, you know, I had a big smile on my face when we won a great deal. And I had a big uh, frown on my face when we missed out on an opportunity. And that just allows you to enjoy the journey, right? Because the reality is that these journeys are intense. These journeys are highly memorable. And it just helps to remember that we are having the time of our lives. And as long as we are staying true to serving our customers and enabling change in the market, only good things happen. Kumar, uh, you know, I've always felt after talking to you that I learned something and this has been right from day one that I met you. So, you know what, we are so fortunate to have, you know, the opportunity to work with you, you know, to be part of the journey with you. And uh, I, I know you have many bigger things to accomplish at Palo Alto. So good luck to you. And it was such a pleasure. And I hope our our, our listeners also enjoy this conversation. Thanks again. Binu, thanks much for having me. It was a, a, an absolute delight working with you and the rest of the board through the CloudGenix journey. And we are super excited at what's ahead for the team at Palo Alto. And we look forward to doing great things and continue to work with Vipro. Thanks, Kumar. 
If you want to learn more about Wipro Ventures, you can find us on the web at wipro.com slash ventures. Enterprise Masters is produced, recorded, and mixed by BSC. To learn more about how to harness the power of storytelling to grow your company, go to www.vscpr.com. Thanks for listening.